Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm really excited for today's show. We have Rachel and Dr. Alex Vindman today. And it's been a busy week, and we're going to talk about a lot of really fascinating things that happened this week. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your com- your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, and we will read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, let's get into our big things of the week. But let's start with this. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. The thing that gets me the most about that clip is the fortunately. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? Well, for him, it was fortunately <laughs> he could grab them by exactly. the pussies without any recourse. But that just proves his sociopathy. It's like, who would say that, you know? So let's let's continue with our weekly Trump date. That's the Trump update. Trump date. Um, big news this week. He was found liable of sexual battery. Not rape, unfortunately, which was the original accusation by E. Jean Carroll. But... Um, He's now appealing that. He filed that yesterday. I just want to point out this woman's bravery. I mean, you talk about going up against Trump and the Trump machine, knowing what was going to come back at her, not just from Team Trump, but MAGA world. Pretty, pretty damn impressive. And even though the uh, finding of rape didn't happen, sexual battery is no small charge. And he was ordered to pay $5 million. And she went on the defamation part as well. So she won across the board. But here's how Trump reacted. I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. It's a political witch hunt. And somehow we're going to have to fight this stuff. We cannot let our country go into this abyss. This is disgraceful. He's so fucking stupid that what he's done this week is incriminate himself further. She's now considering filing another defamation suit because he yet again said she's a liar, she's crazy, and he just lost a defamation case for saying the exact same thing. The thing with Trump is that he has a history of this. This is who he is. It's in his DNA. Let's play this. I'll tell you the funniest is that I'll go backstage before a show. Yes. And everyone's getting dressed and ready and everything else. And, you know, no men are anywhere... And I'm allowed to go in because I'm the owner of the pageant, and therefore I'm inspecting it. You know, I'm inspecting. Right, I want right. to make sure that like everything is good. You're, you're there. Yeah, the dress is, is everyone okay? You know, they're <laughs> yeah. standing there with no clothes. Is everybody okay? And you see these incredible-looking women. And so I sort of get away with things like that. First of all, he's talking about a beauty pageant where m- most of the contestants are underage. What is he inspecting? Why is he in the dressing room? And listen to how he describes his entitlement to do that. It really gives you a window into the world of a man who ultimately was accused of rape and was found liable of sexual assault, which is pretty damn close to rape. He he hung out with Jeffrey Epstein on a regular basis, and this is just part of that crowd. You know, the thing that I get really upset about is when I hear the MAGA crowd say, this trial was rigged, the jury was in the tank for E. Jean Carroll, 
they hated Trump. If that was the case, how come they didn't find him liable for rape? So much of this just doesn't make sense. If they were really in the tank for him and it was really rigged, they would have just thrown the fucking book at him. And they didn't. All right, let's get to the big news this week. The big controversy. The CNN Trump town hall. With all the things to worry about. People are losing their fucking minds over CNN. Now, before we get into our little discussion, I just want to give a quick rundown of what took place at the town hall. But first, let's play this clip. Why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them? Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the okay, question. Okay, it's very simple to That's answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to... You're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> Can you answer why, you, why you held on to the documents? I was negotiating and we were talking to Nara. No, that wasn't the Jerry Springer show. That was the town hall. You, you're nasty if you're a journalist and ask him a question. And you're nasty, or maybe even nastier, if you follow up when he doesn't answer the question. That's his definition of nasty. But let's do a rundown. Besides nasty, he was his usual 12-year-old immature juvenile self calling E. Jean Carroll a whack job, Nancy Pelosi crazy, Mike Pence was a human conveyor belt. Rotten to Sanctimonious, uh, the black cop on J6 who shot Ashley Babbitt was a thug. People in Chinatown don't speak English. Democrats decide after birth which babies to execute. That's a quote. He wouldn't say if he would sign an abortion ban or after how many weeks abortion should be illegal. He took credit for Roe v. Wade's overturning. I did that, he said. Uh, he said he would separate immigrant families again. He wouldn't say if he would accept the results of the 24 presidential election. He said Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger owed me votes. He said the United States in the debt ceiling crisis should default. Of the big lie, he said only stupid people don't believe the election was rigged. On January 6th, he said it was a beautiful day that rioters had love in their heart. He lied about the National Guard. He lied about the timeline in terms of when he told his people to get the hell out of the Capitol. He said he would pardon most of the rioters. And he wouldn't say that he would not pardon the Proud Boys and Oath Keeper leaders Enrico Tarrio and Stuart Rhodes. He defamed E. Jean Carroll again. And what was really unconscionable is how the audience laughed when Trump mocked a woman getting raped. That audience was just disgusting, absolutely disgusting. On the Mar-a-Lago classified documents, he said he had the right to take them, that he automatically declassified them. When asked, did you show those classified top secret documents to anyone, his answer was, not really. Not really. Think about that for a second. He wouldn't say whether he wanted Ukraine or Russia to win that war. He wouldn't say if he'd continue funding and arming Ukraine. He wouldn't say Putin is a war criminal, even though the International Criminal Court in The Hague has issued an arrest warrant for Putin for war crimes. Just an astounding array of lies and deception and dangerous rhetoric, which gets us to the question at hand. Should CNN have had this town hall? The short answer to your question is no, they should not have done this town hall. And the reason they shouldn't have is every single incredible lie you just listed was 100% predictable. So what did CNN do? They put Caitlin in front of him with no available tools at her disposal to actually combat this. But she did as best she could. And I don't think she's bad, but I think that 
She was ill-prepared. They apparently prepared for this for weeks, and she had no response to the thug comma, no response to killing babies after they're born. She didn't even pick up on things which could have been big news. He actually said that he talked to Putin about him invading Ukraine while he was president, and yet that just went out into nowhere. So if you and I could have sat down and made a list of every lie he was going to tell, why didn't they have chirons to dispute this? Why didn't they have audio clips to show testimony disputing exactly what he said? And then what's even worse, they stacked the audience with people who were supposedly going to be at least half undecided, yet nine people spoke and seven had voted for Trump in 2020. This is preparation for a disaster. And a lot of media critics have pointed out that this was supposed to go longer than it actually did, and they cut it short. And the theory is, and I think it's probably accurate, that CNN saw it as a train wreck. Now, on the side of the people who are defending CNN, they're saying, well, this is journalism, and I, and I get that you need to report on Trump, but why have a town hall before the primaries? They're months away, so he has 90 minutes to speak, and you've actually handicapped all of these other Republican primary candidates because you've given him a 90 or 60 minute ad. Wait until you actually have a primary. You can have a town hall with all of the people who are going to participate. Now, what the Democrats are saying is, oh, but we got these great sound clips. He said he killed abortion and da, 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 da. 90% of these sound clips he says all the time anyway and could have been gotten later when you could have actually been prepared for that discussion. And so this wasn't an example of good journalism on CNN's part, in my view. Jen? Yeah. What he, <laughs> what he said. <laughs> that was wonderful. So <laughs> here's my feeling. There's a couple of things at play here. This town hall was not about CNN. It's about Donald Trump. And the people who are most critical of this are critical of the, quote, platform that was given to Trump. But the question then has to be asked, Platform for who? The MAGAs who watch, the MAGAs who were in the crowd, this, the platform wasn't for them. The platform was for the critical, pivotal uh, voters in this election coming up. Moderate Republicans, independents, people who are undecided, suburban women, people of color, Gen Z, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the people who were the audience. The other thing was, there's so much focus on who was in the live audience. It was in New Hampshire, and he's the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. The audience is not the people that were in that room. The audience were the three million people at home, and how many of them needed to see what he said. So there were clear, tangible benefits to this town hall. The first one being moving the needle with swing voters. Anyone who watched that town hall, he lost the suburbs of Atlanta, Phoenix, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, gone. 2024, the ads have written themselves. Just think about it. Donald Trump was asked who should win the war, Ukraine or Russia. He wouldn't, and he couldn't say Ukraine. The people who were happiest to watch that town hall? Jack Smith, Letitia James, Fannie Wills, and E. Jean Carroll's attorneys. Because he further incriminated himself in each of those cases. E. Jean Carroll, 
She watched it and she calls her lawyers and says, let's consider suing him again because he further defamed her that night. The next day, Senator Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana, said, after watching that, I cannot support him in 2024. We also saw a reminder of how more dangerous he is now, how 2024 to 2028 would be a million times worse than 2016 to 2020. And we also saw through his audience how very real this disease in this country is. And so to counter that, my question is, would Donald Trump lose anybody who loves him by watching that? The answer is no. The next question is, is it possible he did lose a lot of very important votes from people who watched that? The clear, obvious answer is yes. So where is the downside for CNN? What is the downside? I don't understand it. Michael Fanon, who is a friend of the pod, was really aggravated and upset by Trump's, I think it was, what, 20 minutes of uninterrupted talking points about J6. And everything that you had to say was valid and true, and I agree. And, and Caitlin did a better job in the second half. She came out much stronger. She was able to go counterpoint with him. They gave him too much time to just go on and on and on. They it gave him the opportunity that. to say to America, I'm Donald Trump. Here I am. This is what you're going to get. Just like Joe Biden the next day tweeted, do you want four more years of that? I personally don't believe it was Caitlin Collins' job to go tit for tat on every single thing. She did a noble job with what she had with a psychopath who just is untethered to reality, untethered to the truth, nasty, belligerent, cruel. But the audience makes up its mind, and the audience were the three million people at home. I think we have to look at who is he planning to talk to when he talks, and it's his base. And he spoke perfectly to his base. Great. They love what they heard. Great. And so they're putting him up for an hour to his base without the other candidates that will be potentially in the primary. So they're basically giving him an advertisement for his campaign, which is what Dan Rather actually pretty much tweeted. And this is not beneficial to the democratic process. But town halls are not debates. But they're going to do town halls with all have... the other candidates if there are candidates. Tim Scott, if he's a candidate, or Nikki Haley, they will get their town halls. They're not going to be for potentially months. And... But they're also not the up, front runner. Well, now they're completely cemented out of it. As our friend of the show, Rick Wilson, said, he said, oars up, it's done. There are two people who are also friends of the show. Ted Lieu, congressman from California. Eric Swalwell, congressman from California. Ted Lieu tweeted, quote, Some people think the town hall was a debacle for CNN, but it was definitely a goldmine for Joe Biden and Democrats. We are going to highlight multiple Donald Trump statements at the town hall from now until November. This presidential election will not be close. Eric Swalwell's tweet, quote, to those constantly fretting about Joe Biden's approval rating or his age, CNN just gave everyone a reminder of what the alternative looks like. These are two very smart people. These are two very anti, you can't get more anti-Trump. Eric Swalwell sued Donald Trump. You cannot get more anti-Trump than these two. 
And I think they're looking at it from the right perspective. Anyway, let's try to get through our winners and losers real quick. My winner, Biden's investment in funds to assist low-income housing to become more energy efficient, water efficient, and resilient to climate disasters. My loser, CNN, who decided not to show up to the Trump town hall. My loser is Putin. His Victory Day parade, which normally features dozens, if not hundreds, of modern tanks, was reduced to a single World War II-era tank due to the devastating losses he suffered from a catastrophic war he chose to make. And my winner, on the same note, is Ukraine. For a little-known story, the New York Times reported, it was confirmed that Ukraine shot down Russia's most sophisticated hypersonic missiles with U.S.-supplied Patriot missile systems. This is a very big deal. My winner, Eugene Carroll, need I say more. Loser, Trump and George Santos, need I say more. That gets us to our weekly rant. You'd think that after the jury in the Eugene Carroll rape and defamation trial in New York, which found Donald Trump liable of sexual abuse, the Republican Party and leading Republicans would finally be saying, enough, we're done. We've had enough of this sick, twisted, twice impeached, indicted on 34 felony counts, sexual abusing sociopath, this loser who's cost us everything. No more. Not a chance. These despicable sycophants, these repulsive cowards, are quadrupling down on their, on their vomitous fealty to Trump, continuing to defend and protect the Godfather like a bunch of mindless made capos in the mafia. The jury is a joke. The whole co- case is a joke, said Marco Rubio. And Trump's ass-kisser-in-chief, Lindsey Graham, said, I think the New York legal system is off the rails when it comes to Donald Trump. No, Senator, what's off the rails is how you and your corrupt, treasonous fellow mobsters continue to support this monster no matter what he does and no matter what the cost to you and your party. These faithful little servants like Rubio and Graham are not blaming Trump, whose perverted little orange fingers and predatory micro-dick have forced themselves on over 20 women, including E. Jean Carroll. They blame the jury, the trial itself, the judicial system, the courts and judges and district attorneys and attorneys general, and the Department of Justice, and the FBI, and Democrats, and never-Trump Republicans like Liz Cheney, and Adam Kinzinger, and Brad Raffensperger, and the media, which they claim all continue to conspire together against Trump in one big-ass witch hunt after another. A conspiracy they all know to be non-existent and untrue. Yet they continue the scam, because Republicans are shameless, pathetic cowards, and because to them, Donald Trump is crack. They know how dangerous and deadly he is, but they're hopelessly addicted to the high and they can't get off the pipe. They're overdosing. And the only EpiPen, the only one they jab into the heart of the party in order to save it, the one that finally dumps Trump is the one they're still unwilling to purchase. All right, let's get to our guests, Rachel and Dr. Alexander Vinman. Rachel Vinman is an opinion columnist at USA Today and a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. She co-hosts the Suburban Women Problem podcast and is an advisory board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative. She's married to retired Lieutenant Colonel and Dr. Alexander Vidman, who participated in the first impeachment hearing of Donald Trump and as a military spouse lived in Germany, Ukraine, and Russia. She's a prominent activist and plain-spoken political commentator on Twitter, where you can follow her at NatSecHobbyist. Dr. Alexander Vinman is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel who was most recently the director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council. He previously served on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, Russia. He earned his Ph.D. from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he is currently a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute. 
Alex leads the national security think tank, the Institute for Informed American Leadership, is an executive board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative, a senior advisor for Vote Vets, and the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Here, Right Matters. He also frequently appears on NPR, MSNBC, and CNN, and remains engaged with principal decision makers in Washington and Kiev. Rachel, Alex, welcome back into the back room. Thanks. Thanks for having us again. Yeah, I'm really excited. So before we get into all the juicy political and geopolitical stuff, give us a, a Vinman family update. You're in a, in a hotel room in uh, Ohio, you said? Yes, we're going to a Lizzo concert tonight. But before I the like concert... Lizzo, okay. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> I think that's uh, unbelievable. Concert... I think everybody who's listening, there's a million reasons why people should love you guys. But the fact that you guys are going to a Lizzo concert just makes you even more lovable. <laughs> I, you know, I I, I think her, her music is good. And, you know, we, we'll sing along when it's playing in the car. But I also, frankly, like the fact that she's not afraid to push back against controversy. Mm-hmm. That whole scenario where she was criticized for playing a, a flute mm-hmm. in the Library of Congress, that that actually was, was impactful for me. Yeah. And by the way, yeah. that whole thing had absolutely nothing to do with race. I just want to put that out yeah. here. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Rachel, yeah. No, no, clearly. You know, I will say the exciting thing, though, is before the concert, I work with a group that produces my podcast, a group called Red Wine and Blue, very active in Ohio. And we are collecting signatures for a ballot initiative that we hope to have in November to for the citizens of Ohio to a choice on the ballot so they can vote on it. So also very excited that I'll be able to do that before before the concert, but see, it was this, coincidental that I could do that, but this very is, excited. This is yet another reason why people love you. You're going to go see Lizzo, <laughs> but first you're going to spend some time saving democracy and protecting reproductive rights. Awesome. I hope so. What a day. It's only 413,000 signatures. It's, that's not that much. Uh, we should be able to get a large check coming done today. Yeah, I don't know how many people. They, yeah, we're not citizens, so we can't sign, but, you know, yeah. But we have... We have even bigger Vinman family update. I don't know. Do you want to give it? Yeah, sure. We are now the constituents of Ron DeSantis in South Florida, but in uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the blue bubble. You and, moved, you uh, moved I, you to know, Florida? We South did. Florida, we yeah. did. Look at the incredulousness. We're, we're there. We're there to turn it. Well, I, purple and blue. the last time you were on, we, we established the whole Jewish thing and I'm a Jew and all that. And I'm sitting with my co-producer and associate producer who also Jews. And so we did the, the heat, Florida Jews, we get it. We totally get it. The weather. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this one was easy. Actually, our 12 year old daughter made the call. Well, wow. we've been coming down there for years. Um, my best friend from the military has been down here with his wife's family. There. And we're not there. Yeah. And then as a result, we had a network kind of um, established itself here, but mainly we visited a school that, you know, that they are associated with. So Ellie toured it, said she wanted to go there and that was it. Well, we toured it on the same day as Ivanka Trump, by the way, that was fun. Did you guys hang out and compare notes? We we did not, but I think the school was like really freaked out because it was just like a random day in December and like the night before, they put two and two together that realized they were having the Vinmans and Ivanka tour on the same day. And they didn't push us out. They were like, stay as long as you want. And we're like, we got to go look at houses. And that's when I knew it was a good place for us because they didn't try to avoid any kind of conflict. Unfortunately, it looks like our, our daughter, Eleanor, took the last slot in the school. And there's no room. <laughs> oh, away from. true. <laughs> 
No, no, that is not true at all. Did you hear Ivanka like in the admissions office screaming, do you know who my daddy is? <laughs> my daddy no, but it would have been great. is big in Florida. Bigly. Bigly. That's awesome. He's bigly in Florida. Um, by the way, Rachel, you have to do us all a favor in America. You have to take video of Alex singing along to Lizzo. Okay, yeah, I will, for sure. No, I'm going to play it cool. All right. <laughs> Somehow I don't think you're going to be playing it cool tonight. I think you're going to be all out there. You're going to be doing it. No, I... I you're going to be like, you have to let it go at the concert. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll and, see. My daughter will get me into it, I'm sure. And so the, how is the 12-year-old? She's she's happy. She's moving to Florida. She's, she's good. Yeah, that's great. She's sitting in the closet at the hotel right now because we told her she had to be quiet. So <laughs> that, that's where we are. Our daughter's in the closet. But, like, literally... She, she's good. She's adjusting. It's, uh, frankly... The school is superb, a lot more rigorous, so higher expectations, but that's kind of education. So you're living there now. You're done. You're out of Virginia, mm -hmm. I think is where yeah. you're living. Right. And so how do you- We sold our house in a day. <laughs> Metaphorically or- No, no. It Anything? really, like, we put it on the market and it sold in a day and we're like, should we go? And we were like, let's just do it. So yeah. we decided to move a lot earlier because we had the opportunity. But sometimes life is like that. You just jump when you have the chance. Now, Florida traditionally has a lot of pros, but now they have a lot of cons. Like, how do you square your move with moving to DeSantis country? Florida is an ugly uh, place right now. It is. It, it is. is. I think we're in a, in a nice spot with a, frankly, far more open-minded cohort than other places in the state that are, you know, maybe even, I would say, regressive. That's not the case for where we are in South Florida. And people are like, personal level are actually in general pretty good mm -hmm. it's when politics seep in that things become challenging right and uh, but you don't have to get conversation yeah, yeah I've, people. Had, I've had good conversations folks that mm -hmm. are, are you know, trump supporters folks that are not trump supporters and i think it's a good place to be to maybe drive some positive change and also i plan on doing um you know we we have a new house we've ordered furniture it takes like you know months to get it it's all everything's still really crazy in that regard and after that when things settle down in the fall we hope to host events and we do live in a place where there's a lot of support but mm -hmm. if that's the case and we want there to be change we have to be agents of that change so and sounds like you're it's an open invitation for people to come to our house for <laughs> yeah maybe not everyone but we yeah. will i mean that that's okay everyone would be welcome we hope to see where we can plug in also shine a spotlight on some of the real dangers of ron DeSantis. and i mean just now just before this he signed a bill that made it legal for for-profit insurance companies to deny based on was moral, ethical, or religious or religious reasons to deny coverage to people. So, you know, that is, that's something that needs to be highlighted. And classified as travel. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. His travel's all classified. So you won't know who's paying for it yeah, so uh, when he doesn't actually run for governor. He's a fascist. I mean, he literally is a fascist. He is. He's all... He's his own worst enemy. I think, Would you like to tell a story or share the story of who you might run into at airport in Florida? So I think the fact is things are not what they seem in media uh, that, that was validated this weekend, actually. Those Fox News revelations in the Dominion trial where the, the personalities were talking about how much they, they disliked Trump and they didn't believe what he was saying, any of his lies, but were freewheeling and spinning those lies publicly for consumers that would buy into it. Uh, that was validated. I ran into one of the key personalities and it was very, very cordial. 
uh, handshakes exchanged, some admiration expressed, something to the extent of, I know we tangled a little bit, but that's just the way it is. It wasn't a surprise that these people didn't believe kind of nonsensical conspiracy theories, but were, were self-serving and promoting them. It just validated that. Alex, why don't you give us an update on the war, Ukraine, maybe speak a little bit about the Republican reaction to it all and, and this movement towards limiting aid and support to Ukraine and the love that they seem to have for Putin sure. and Russia. Let me start with the tactical and kind of zoom out from there. This long-awaited counteroffensive by the Ukrainians looks like it's has kind of kicked off in the past couple of days. And the Ukrainians are kind of liberating territory, hard, hard won territory that the Russians have managed to occupy over the past 11 months around the city of Bakhmut. Uh, the Ukrainians have quickly kind of started to liberate that territory. You know, right now it's to depths of kilometers. You know, the Russians were fighting over really inches and making tiny, tiny gains. The Ukrainians over the course of the uh, past couple of days have liberated kilometers. And this is just the beginning of, of a counteroffensive. Whether that's the focal point for this offensive, it's unlikely. It's not strategic ground, but it's likely to suck up a lot of Russian resources, pull up what are called reserves, the kind of the, the forces that the Russians would use in other areas that are much more strategic would be sucked into Bakhmut, giving the Ukrainians more flexibility to attack elsewhere. Although the Ukrainians have already started to demonstrate that they'll do pretty well, this is not something that we should be watching on hourly basis for major changes. This is going to unfold over weeks and months. We'll see this counteroffensive kind of run through the fall with significant Ukrainian gains, is my expectation. There are a lot of folks that are dubious as to whether the Ukrainians could break through Russia's defensive lines. I'm not one of them. I don't think that Ukraine has been armed to achieve strategic wins. It's not going to break the back of their Russian armed forces, unfortunately. I didn't receive sufficient planes, ammunition, cruise missiles, all those types of things that I've been calling for. They didn't get those, but in spite of all those shortfalls, Ukraine is still going to be able to do well and really force Russia to the negotiating table, I think, either on the horns of the dilemma where Putin has to drop hundreds of thousands more troops, which is destabilizing, or starting to test out the waters for negotiating and seeing if he could keep some of what he's seized since 2014. Most importantly, Crimea. So that's the tactical scenario. There's been some interesting developments over the past couple of weeks. There was a Victory Day, World War II Victory Day parade, which Putin made an annual celebration since he's come to power. This was probably the most underwhelming of them with little capability. This is generally used as a way to show Russian power, intimidate neighbors, not much in the way of intimidation. So it was quite a weak show. And then just days before the attack on the Kremlin itself, which there's a lot of kind of back and forth on who was the culprit behind it. I contend it was still likely Ukrainian security services, Ukrainian intelligence services, or a Russian opposition enabled by Ukrainian security services rather than some sort of false flag by the Russians. A false flag is a pretext for escalation. Russia doesn't have a means to escalate. It's not saving magic tricks for an escalation. So that doesn't make sense with me. It was just shows the weakness of that. Uh, Russian state and, and being able to defend its most strategic targets. So going out from there now, some additional capabilities coming in from the UK recently, these long range attack systems, these storm shadow cruise missiles that give them the range to go after Russian air bases in Crimea, 
go after this Kerch Bridge, which is kind of a lifeline to Crimea. Those those are important capabilities and uh, potentially open up other donors to offer similar capabilities and maybe even U.S. attack on these long-range uh, missiles that we've been talking about for months that the U.S. government has been reluctant to to offer, mainly because of a really, frankly, a poor assessment of the real risks of escalation. So we don't want to give something because we don't want the Russians to overreact. But the fact is that the Russians don't have the means to react. So there's no likely likelihood of our overreaction, but it's arresting our ability to fully support the Ukrainians and, and try to realize a short war rather than long war. And then the last thing I'll mention on this one, working our way out to you know, Putin's desires and ability to sustain this war. This year will be tougher. I think the the buffer he had last year for his economy with extremely high oil prices is not going to be there this year. All the sanctions that we put on were kind of eased because of high oil prices. That's not going to be the case. There's a cap on oil prices. It's not going to allow him to uh, generate the kinds of budgetary resources to provide pensions and provide services for the population, as well as sustain a, a large-scale war effort. So there's going to be pressure coming from that end. Russia continues to be isolated. And the blows that it's about to suffer on the battlefield are going to be the most important impact. That's going to be reasons for him to start to wind down the war. But unfortunately, we have a Republican Party and a Republican establishment represented by the far right that is actually giving him a lifeline. It is offering the, the possibility that all he needs to do is hang on through the end of 2024, and then he could have a much more favorable Republican establishment, whether that's represented by Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, or some other fringe Republican player, there's an offer, frankly, for Putin to hang on that is being extended by the Republican Party, which is deeply disturbing. All the pressure that the U.S. and the Ukrainians are, are doing to try to wind down this war, the Republicans are undoing with regards to offering this lifeline. And that's something that we'll have to contend with as we go through the primary season and the election cycle, and there'll be voices denouncing this kind of anti-U.S. national security approach, but it is still something that Putin's going to pay attention to and probably respond to and extend this, the, this war for. And he's been getting some pushback internally too, right? It I wouldn't overstate that. As one would expect in a war that's going pretty well, there are going to be voices emerging that are critical, but these right now are not powerful opposition voices. The person that's been critical is a guy named... Um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, he runs a state-sponsored private military company, and he's been critical about the lack of support that his PMC has been getting in order to seize the city of Bakhmut. But he's well under the control of the state. Maybe not all elements, this traditional defense and security apparatus has a slightly more tenuous hold on him. He's critical of the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff, the senior most military, but... He's under the control of uh, Vladimir Putin. So not a real a threat there, but there is starting to be some kind of internal struggles or power really is what it comes down to. And and is that just heightened by this war? Uh, he's had to manage factions throughout his career, between, usually between technocrats um, and the kind of the power structures, his, his own roots, KGB services type thing, or uh, FSB, or the, the follow one to KGB. But... He's very, very effectively suppressed opposition, especially kind of the liberal opposition. Uh, so he's very skilled at, at doing this. And now it's within his own ranks to a certain extent, but I, I don't really see a major threat 
yet. I think as this counteroffensive unfolds and things become more challenging toward the end of this year, we could see some of that factionalism emerge in a much more robust manner. And what about the Russian people? Are they fed up yet? Is there any real opposition there? No, no they're just going along. No, they're, they're, he's still, he's still quite popular. You know, there, there are again, arguments about how, how firm the support is behind them. Owen indicates that he's quite popular at the moment. There's arguments that, you know, it's an authoritarian regime. People are scared to kind of speak otherwise. So it might be softer. That's probably likely true, but he still enjoys kind of majority support. And I don't think he's under real pressure just yet. Again, all these things are going to start to converge towards the, the, the end of the year. And that's why he's likely to probably start to consider the negotiating track rather than protra protracted war that could further destabilize, you know, the most important thing to him, which is his regime. And do you think the media portrayal of what's happening in this war is fair, is accurate, that the developments that occur or portrayed in a realistic way? It, it is what it is. I mean, it's the 24-hour news cycle. So basically, it's like bipolar swings from euphoria to kind of disaster based on what's going on in that 24-hour period, which is pretty absurd for, from a kind of a defense and a national security standpoint. You, you don't look at kind of one, you know, a small moment and determine that's that the trajectory of the entire campaign from that. So, but it's just the nature of the way things are. We, we jump from one thing to the other. In reality, you know, that if you look, you take a step back and you look at trend lines, it's pretty clear how things are developing. What we're missing is, is better analysis, maybe longer kind of segments on things that are truly important. It's hard to cover everything from a national news perspective. That's why, you know, local news was so critical. Historically, they could cover the kind of local stories pretty effectively and the national news could cover the national news. Now the national news is because of consolidation has to do everything and jumps from one thing to the other in, you know, five, four, five, six minute segments. We don't have kind of in-depth analysis of the three, four, five critical things that are, you know, not just the issues of the day, but the issues of the week and month and so forth. And given the rhetoric that's come out of the Republican Party about the amount of money being spent, and it's a lot of money. Do you think the American people are still behind the war? Like, why are we spending all this money in Ukraine when we have, you know, border crisis and poor people in America and, and we should be spending that money here? Is there a growing chorus of go. that that you're concerned yeah. about? Or you think that's just the squeaky uh, wheel gets I'm, the oil? I think there's a lot of squeaky wheel gets the oil here and the opposition to support to Ukraine is actually relatively modest. It's definitely the fringe on both the right and the left, frankly, that does not account for a lot of the population. The right in slightly more moderate, but still frankly, traditionally extreme positions is, uh, is weakened its support. Traditional you know, anti-democratic authoritarian issues would have rallied the right and that's not happening mainly because the right-wing media is kind of portraying Putin as not so bad a guy and Ukraine or Ukraine is corrupt. That's, it's, that's not, that's not accurate, but that's the way they're doing it. You know, they're doing it for their own kind of self-serving Trump-serving cause. With regards to the, the expenditures around this war, what, what's important to remember is, you know, these are not negligible sums of money, but they are quite modest. We're talking about somewhere in the order of $45 billion has been expended for weapons for Ukraine. Even there, uh, it's, it's something called presidential drawdown authority. It's, it's weapons that have older weapons that have come out of the U.S. inventory 
And then that money is being spent on the military industrial complex to replace it with higher end weapons for the service. So it's actually not a bad expenditure of resources. We upgrade our weapons and give it to our ally that needs it to fight. So it's disingenuous to say that all this is going to Ukraine. They're getting old things that were working its way out of inventory. But that amounts to 5% of the defense budget. It amounts to a fraction of a percent of, of GDP. What do we get in return is the question. What we get is Russia no longer being a threat to the Euro-Atlantic Alliance. We are a member of the Euro-Atlantic Alliance. US, Canada, all the way across Europe. Instability on NATO and along the Euro-Atlantic Alliance flanks is dangerous to the US. It could potentially draw the US into conflict. It's destabilizing to our trade and commerce, which is critically important. And for a pittance, the Ukrainians have dispensed with that threat. For the next five to 10 years, probably closer to 10 years, Russia will not be a conventional threat. That means that we don't have to worry about it. All these war plans that we had established to contend with Russia, now we could put on the shelf. We could start thinking about threats in uh, the Pacific with regards to China, resourcing that before we would have to go put resources towards Russia and China. Now we could focus our resources on China, the kind of long-term threat. And at the same time, we are deterring other countries from military adventures that could that are destabilizing for the for the world. The Chinese are deterred from conceiving a Taiwan war scenario because they don't know if they would be successful militarily. That the West would come in and support a Taiwan. That they have doubts over the corruption in their own ranks and whether they could achieve their military aims. That the entire world would consolidate the democratic world would consolidate in opposition and sanction China. This is a enormous benefit. As long as Ukraine wins, we are stronger and more secure. If Ukraine loses, if we weaken support or if this war extends for an inordinately long period of time, it's far, far more risky. So for a drop in the bucket, we are basically ensuring U.S. long-term security. Let's shift from the war in Ukraine to the war here at home, which is a war on our children, our family members, the gun violence epidemic. Rachel, I listened to your latest episode yesterday, and I love the fury of the three of you guys because it is infuriating that this mm -hmm. happens, this Groundhog Day thing that you guys talked about. Almost every day there's a shooting in this country. Uh, we can't go anywhere anymore. Can't go to a hospital, can't go to a concert, a restaurant, a museum, anywhere. And you talked about you know, parents' rights, that whole angle of that just seems to have gotten so distorted. Why don't you speak a little bit about wh what you're doing and why it's so important? Alex was at an event last week in New York and he came home and he told me the issue of parental rage was something that a member of Congress that he was doing an event with, I mean, they addressed this is something they have to address with their constituents. And I don't hear a lot of talk sort of nationally or from, we, we talk about this locally, but it's not something that we hear, for instance, President Biden discussing, even though this is something in our communities that's a really huge issue. Of course, he talks about gun violence. That's kind of separate and additional. But to me, it's, it's all part of the same issue. Like, we're all mad about the shootings. We're all mad about our children not being safe when they go to school. 
And we're upset about that, but we haven't done anything. It hasn't affected Republicans getting elected in a lot of ways. And they will continue to get what they want in order to please their base. And it seems what they want is just this this radical extremist agenda. And I don't believe most politicians, most Republican politicians even want this, but because their constituents are asking for it, they're happy to support it. And unfortunately, we have groups like, let's say Moms for Liberty, which is not a grassroots organization. It's an astroturf organization. They come, it's well-funded from DC, from think tanks, from very wealthy donors. And they give people not misinformation, certainly, but they're giving them a, a sheet of talking points that they can go. And I have people reach out to me on a regular basis and they say, look, I know this is wrong, but it sure seems like they know what they're talking about. Where can I find resources to counter this? And that's the problem we have on the Democrat side is no one is funding to say, yes, it's wrong and here's why. And and we don't have politicians talking about it. And so, again, the organization I work for, Red, White and Blue, we try to do that. We try to provide those resources. It is difficult. It costs money. It's hard. And I also think there's this idea we don't want to counter because it's nonsense. But we have to counter it. Or channel channel parental rage into parental rights. So that's what we're trying to do is say, I have rights too. I'm also a parent and I get to decide for my child. You are not going to decide for all children. You know, I'm an educator. So in books, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this, but this is something we learn at school that in books, we can see a mirror or we can see a window and both are very important. So we can see a window, we can learn, we can also see a mirror and see ourselves reflected in something. And and I grew up in suburban Oklahoma, and I was interested in topics well beyond the borders of my suburb and my state. And I was able to explore that through books, but I could see there were people who cared about the same things I cared about, the conversations I didn't necessarily have in my home or with my friends. And that was important to me. So when we're dealing with more serious issues of children, like, hey, what happens in my home isn't normal. This is maybe abuse that they can find a vocabulary to be able to discuss this. Also, identity issues. We know this is important for members of the LGBTQ community to see themselves reflected in books. That's the moderate level. (laughs) The more extreme version is that you're taking out Holocaust education. So this is baffling to me. This is something, yeah. Education on, on... Know, yeah, the, the history of slavery in this country. Mm-hmm. These are mainstream issues that are now being attacked by yeah. these movements. It's just like that's the hypocrisy. There's such a hypocrisy <laughs> in the, you know, someone like DeSantis in particular. The parents should have the decisions, but yet at the same time, he wants to tell the parents what books their kids can read, what bathrooms they can use. It's, it yeah, ends up but being they got a, a bunch lot of bullshit. traction. Uh, it is a bunch of bullshit, but they got a lot of traction with it on the trans rights, on the bathroom stuff. Glenn Youngkin got elected in Virginia when we lived in Virginia, and he got elected on the parental rage issue. I mean, Terry McAuliffe was not a good candidate. I don't think his heart was really in it. We had that that part of it. We have to have good candidates, right? But there was this backlash of like, part of Virginia is always going to vote for the Republican. We get that. But he won because of Northern Virginia and all of these parents were like, we have been doing all the things during COVID and it's really hard. And it was really hard for women who kind of 
carry that burden and no one was acknowledging it. No one was acknowledging that it was not a perfect system. And, you know, like a lot of kids had needs that simply were not met. And, and then it was just like, this was the best thing to do. I mean, I always said 2020, there weren't, there were no good choices. There were only choices and you had to make choices and it sucked. And we just, we see this disconnect. We see it still now with the parental rage and that we don't, the White House isn't addressing it at all. Look, the Biden administration has done amazing things. They have set the groundwork for so much environmental work that I'm going to have to leave to my 12 year old, like this world. And I, I think that's vital and important. It's just hard in the moment to get people excited about this when they're dealing with every single school board election fighting for 20 more votes so that someone doesn't get in who wants to ban all books. And there is this instance of a school and they had raised money to put diverse libraries in every classroom so the kids could just take the book. They didn't have to check it out from the library. It's just so it was more comfortable. The school raised the money. The administration was behind it. The parents were behind it. Three years later, it was all removed because it was too radical. What happened in that interim? COVID happened. Radicalization happened. All this misinformation happened. So the same library that had been approved, that had been advocated for, that people had raised money for and spent so much time was now like the devil and it couldn't be there. And that was all, by the way, when Donald Trump was president, but it was not objectionable then. And when they see an opening, they just exploit it because they're not trying to make anyone's lives better. They're trying to stay in power and make money. And I don't mean to be so fatalistic about it, but it's true. But what we have to fight against is like, you cannot allow that as an excuse to get complacent, to just withdraw and not participate. I know it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard but we have to keep fighting because this is what we're giving to our children. And it is really, really difficult. So that's the work I hope to do in Florida. I met some people and I was like, oh, these are the people I want. I'm going to have them over. I want to talk about this. My friend was like, oh, no, they vote. They vote. Guess what? Voting isn't enough. Okay. So you can vote, but you got to have conversations with your friends who might not vote the same way. So they can have conversations with their friends. And you've got to try to have the hard conversations with people who are not going to vote that the same way. And you need to educate them. And it's not comfortable, but this is what we have to do. I think you guys should go it. set up a table at the villages and just start. <laughs> <laughs> and just keep score. I got, yeah, we got another I one. We, we, we yeah, yeah, converted we another one. Tally. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about it's, Trump. It's, a, um, it's really hard. Because he, he had a big week. His week in, it consisted of... Um, getting uh, found liable of uh, sexual battery in the E. Jean Carroll case. But the bigger news this week, there seems to be so much passion over this CNN town hall. I know you guys have been very vocal about it as well. It's become more about CNN than mm -hmm. Trump himself. I have very, very strong opinions about this town hall and why it was needed, should have been done, why CNN was right to do it. Help me understand why this town hall should not have been held. In your opinion, because for me it was he's a sexual primary convicted of sexual crimes, uh, defamation. Um, he's an insurrectionist. We knew what was coming. Why would a mainstream twenty-four hour news cycle normalize that? He he has all sorts of platforms on Newsmax or Fox News. What what was the purpose served 
in giving them the airwaves, uh, reaching a larger audience and giving, frankly, permission for folks to say, well, I guess he's, he's okay. This is about, I think, setting a precedent for other news networks to treat him as, as a normal candidate. I think to me, that's a dangerous thing. I, I think back to kind of, you know, the, the rise of authoritarian regimes and, and frankly, fascism and Nazism that was normalized over the course of years. Like he was, like this guy was in 2015 and 16, even though he was a fringe actor. And I think that gave him a level of legitimacy that he does not deserve. So that's probably the biggest issue. I mean, the counter to that, of course, is CNN thinks it's newsworthy and needs to be out there, needs to inform the public. I think some of that is actually spin at this point. You know, they were, they, they kind of agreed to do something where they thought that their reporter would be able to back check and that was totally ineffective and was a series of ground rules that were served with an extremist group of um, viewers that were enjoying the spectacle, enjoying the abuse of, of some folks that were already victimized. I think it's just biased, unfair, and driven by profit. Uh, okay. I think it wasn't principle driven. I have a slightly different view. First off, I would like to say I like Caitlin Collins. I don't think she was the right person for this. I think there are very few journalists in the United States that could handle him. But I I think a different forum would have been better. The problem with the whole thing, I think, started when they pitched Trump World. And then the negotiation is at that point. Yeah, not so favorable. Although apparently MSNBC pitched him too. And I'm sure that was maybe a non-starter because they were going with someone, Rachel Maddow. Or someone who, you know, Allie, maybe who, yeah, who, you know, who could really punch back. I mean, the audience was also, there was an energy there that was very favorable for Trump. And that's just something that should, that cannot be afforded to him going in. For me, Andy, I'll just, I'll be really blunt. It's hard for me to even zoom out and be impartial because I was forced to confront the reality that. Trump will likely be the nominee, and I've been in denial about that. And for a lot of reasons, I think it's bad for our country. But for me, for our family personally, it is really simple. Another Trump presidency means we would likely be political refugees. I know what he is capable of. I know what he's going to do. He will absolutely seek all kinds of revenge on many people. My family will be one of those groups. So it's very personal. And then it's difficult for me to look beyond that, really. And that was my being upset. But I sent a lot of mes- messages to people who are my friends who disagreed with me. And I just told them, like, we might disagree, but we're still on the same team. And I'm not going to get hung up on this. I continue to be disappointed in CNN. Look, if you think you did the right thing, let it stand on its own. Don't hit me over the head and tell me how great it was. If I disagree, I disagree. Let me come back organically, but don't just continue to tell me that you did a great thing. And also don't make the news. But Donald Trump is totally capable of making the news. I think they made some missteps. And obviously the Carol verdict was earlier in the week. And that was way before any of this. But I, I don't think Caitlin is ready for it. And But I think it's a business decision because they want younger viewers. They need younger viewers because no one is like subscribing to cable and watching CNN. So they need people in her demographic. And that's probably why they chose her. All makes sense. She just can't handle Donald Trump. Most people can't handle Donald Trump because he just spews 
he's so practiced at this. He's almost 80 years old in his entire life. He just lie after lie after lie. Who can counter that? I can. I mean, I, know, if you're out there, Trump, okay. listening to the back room, please come on this podcast. I think that you Oh, could. would we I have some fun? Could. I think this, a lot of people could not. So I, I think that, the issue- that's my thing. And I, I think the main issue, and I'll sort of broaden it by saying we're kind of all in that same boat. We don't have that same personal family. Like, I don't sit here and think, okay, if Trump becomes president, he's coming after me personally. And I can mm -hmm. certainly appreciate that being a, a major concern of families like yours. But in a sense, we are all in a similar boat. My daughter doesn't yeah. have the same reproductive rights anymore because of Trump. Mm -hmm. If he becomes president, he literally will go off the fascist deep end and mm -hmm. in my family and yours and everyone will be living in an authoritarian state, which is a horrible thing. But I guess the thing I struggle with is, isn't putting him out there like that front and center right now with everything else that's going on, also the same week that George Santos is indicted, isn't this so good for all of us to say, this is why we can't let this happen again? You know, there were people like Eric Swalwell and Ted Lieu, who have both been on this show, and those guys hate Trump more than anybody. Eric Swalwell sued Trump. They saw the benefit from an advertising standpoint, from- Yeah, from yeah, the definitely. I think Eric Swalwell said something like, if you think Biden is so bad, if you watched CNN the other night, you realize what the alternative is. Isn't there value in keeping him out of that Oval Office to just sort of, okay, Mr. Trump, here's your 60 or 90 minutes, go for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, Be because the answer is yes. Did he gain any voters that night? Is there anyone who was on no, a fence absolutely. who watches that and goes, that's, you know, I sat out 20, I didn't vote for him, I voted for Biden, but after this show, I'm in. To the contrary, yeah. <laughs> is it possible and even likely that there were many, many, many people in all the suburbs, were there any suburban women who watched this, who may have been on the fence, who didn't then go, I'm out, I'm not gonna vote for this guy. So the platforming, you mentioned Newsmax and Fox, that's his choir. He's preaching to that choir. Is it logical to have him on a CNN preaching to those people who really are the ones who are going to help you and me and everybody else keep him out of the Oval Office? So I think, you know, this is a, a very persuasive way to look at it. From my perspective, it's it's also a bit transactional. You know, we've seen now the result of his, his own self-disruptive nature, and it's going to probably have some significant effects in terms of attack ads, you know, relating to their public at large, but, you know, from a principled basis. And, you know, I look at things kind of from a principled basis. Mm -hmm. I think it was a mistake for CNN to do this and to different platform to do that. And that's the starting point that we shouldn't have, you know, our marquee, our principled news outlets give platform to these types of folks. That's the going in position. And it's a values-based consistency in the way I look at the world. You know, I, I was critical of, of CNN ahead of time and also during the, the spectacle, but I could let it go. I think there was a lot of hate to be made from this based on his own self-destructive nature. And we'll take it from there. I just don't think it's good for mainstream media to treat him like any other candidate when he's not, when he's a, a hazard to everything that the, those outlets kind of espouse as, as their guiding principles and, and values. Yeah. I think it was very, very undercutting for that purpose. In principle, I totally agree. It just, it just may be the world we're living in now, sadly, and unfortunately. Yeah. I think it's hard for all of us to 
really understand the changes that happen so quickly and getting information out and how that all works. So it becomes just challenging, especially for people who are almost 50, like me, who have dealt with things in such a way for so long. And then to see everything upended in really a few years in a lot of ways and to try to process and figure out what is the best thing to do and what was sort of especially unappealing to me about the CNN thing. If you think it's the right thing to do, do it, but let it stand on its own. Mm -hmm. Let's not defend it and tell me why it's great. Let it stand. If after the fact it works out, I'm going to say you were right and I was totally wrong. And that maybe that was a turning point, but it's really hard in less than 24 hours later to just keep tooting your own horn and keep saying how great it is. And, and I think we have to look at the rest of the country, not just the DC world to re to truly understand. And that's only going to come with time to be able to understand it. And we don't have that perspective yet, but I think it's done. We need to calm down. We need to move on as Alex. We need to make hay while the sun is shining. And that means we can't get tripped up on this anymore. It's been 36 hours. Let's go on with our lives. Yeah. And we have really important work to do. And there's Lizzo. Yeah, absolutely. We still have to enjoy Lizzo in the meantime, who, by the way, at her Tennessee concert, she had drag queens come and dance. So I don't think she will do that here. But I like that she, a lot of artists are making political statements mm -hmm. while they are, and not, it's not really political, but they're making statements. And I love it. Well, I know I you guys got to go. Thanks again for coming on. You've been generous with your time. I look forward to our next conversation. Have fun at Lizzo and get those petition signatures. I, I, I am. And pictures of Alex dancing. Yes. Thanks so much, Andy. All right. We'll post them. Take care, guys. Enjoy. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That's episode 73. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review because it's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, it's also helpful if you follow and subscribe because you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And a big thank you again to our guests, Rachel and Dr. Alexander Vindman. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>